All right, if you've got your Bible, open up to Colossians chapter 1. As we finish up what we started last week, uh, kind of about the believer's uh, resolution. As we kind of start this new year, uh, kind of taking stock of where we're at in our faith and where we're aiming to go. Now, I'm going to go ahead and tell you as we start off, I'm going to try to go kind of quick because typically my notes are about three pages long. This morning, they're six pages long. So... Someone groaned. I don't know who that was, but... um, All right. So last week, we looked at Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. Today, we're going to look at verses 11 through 14. We're going to kind of finish this passage up. Last week, we looked at the purpose of knowing God's will, that if we're going to live a life that glorifies and honors God, then we need to strive to know and understand God's will. And then we closed up last week saying that there's a reason why we need to know God's will. That we know God's will for a reason so that we can walk in a a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him. That's what Paul says, that we're striving to know God's will so we can live in this way that glorifies, honors, and magnifies God. So that's what we're going to look at this morning. We're going to look at this, kind of ask this question of what does it mean to live in a way that is um, worthy of the Lord? What does it mean to live in this way that, that is fully pleasing to the Lord? Because thankfully, Paul, as he said that, he follows it up with those instructions right after that. He doesn't leave us guessing. He doesn't leave us in the dark. He follows it up completely. So, we're going to read verses 9 through 14 of Colossians. We'll read what we looked over last week too. Uh, Then we're going to pray, and then we're going to make our way through the passage. All right, so Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse 9. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to His glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Let's pray. Father, we come before you now thankful for your word, thankful for your love for us, thankful for your grace shown to us through your Son. Father God, I pray now that as we study your word, Father God, that you through your spirit would speak louder uh, to our hearts and our minds through your word, God, uh, convicting, challenging, encouraging, God, drawing us closer to yourself. Father God, that you would speak, that we would hear, and that we would listen. We love you, we thank you, in Jesus' name we do pray, amen. All right, so if we're going to ask the question, how do we live a life worthy of the Lord and pleasing to Him, here's what Paul lays out for us. First thing is to embrace life change. So he says, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, in verse 10, fully pleasing to Him. First thing that he kind of says that we're going to kind of pull from this is bearing fruit in every good work. Bearing fruit, that means producing fruit, producing a life that is, that is being changed by God. Last week, as we looked at the will of God, we saw uh, from the passage in First Thessalonians, 
is where it talked about our sanctification is God's will for your life. Paul says this is God's will for your life, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. And so this idea of, of life change, this idea of being made different from who we used to be, this idea of changing from being who I was before Christ to being who Christ wants me to be. As believers, we need to understand that yes, Jesus Christ loved us and saved us just how we were. And yes, He loves us in our strength struggles and even in our failures, but God's desire is that we are being changed. God's desire is that we are being shaped, that our actions, that our thoughts, that our desires, that our wants are being changed because of our relationship with Him. So the first thing that I want us to understand about this fruit that Paul says that we should be bearing in every good work, first is that fruit is the byproduct of a life lived in loving obedience to Jesus. The fruit that Paul talks about happens as we seek to to honor God. The fruit that God is talking about happens as we set our focus on Him and we strive to obey Him and love Him and we surrender our life to Him. We don't manufacture this fruit. We don't say, okay, uh, I'm going to go put on a fake smile. I'm going to go pretend that I love God. or I'm going to go pretend that I love people. I'm going to go pretend all this stuff so that I look like a good Christian. The fruit that God produces in our life comes as we say, okay, God, you're in control and I'm going to surrender my life to you. I'm going to follow your leadership. I'm going to follow what you've commanded. When I don't, when I mess up, I'm going to confess. I'm going to repent. But I'm giving my life to you. And as we live this life where we say, God, I understand that I'm no longer in control of my life, but you are my master, you are my king, you are my father, you are the one that I'm going to follow, then as we do that, then God begins to take our obedience and shape us and mold us and create fruit in our life. In Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 through 23, it says this, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now in that passage in Galatians chapter 5, Paul is talking about us walking in the Spirit. And he's talking about us living a life where we say, uh, Holy Spirit, you're going to lead us into God's Word. We looked at this last week. You're going to lead us into truth. You're going to lead us into God's Word. You're going to lead us closer to Jesus. As you lead, we are going to be submissive to your will, to your leadership, and we're going to follow you. And as we do that, the Spirit produces love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. He begins to, to change our hearts and to shape us. And so as we seek to glorify God, as we seek to live for God, as we seek to live a life where we are following and obeying Him, then God begins to produce this fruit in our life. So it's the byproduct of living a life in obedience to Jesus. We focus on Jesus and God begins to change us and shape us uh, and produce this stuff, this, this fruit in our life. Next, I want us to see that fruit comes as we live out our faith by following God's leadership. Fruit comes as we live out our faith by following God's leadership. Now, we've talked about this before. But the reality of faith is that faith changes our life. The reality of a saving faith in Jesus Christ is that that faith produces some kind of change in who we are. 
Now, the illustration that I've used before is if you had a chair sitting up here or the chair that you're sitting in now, you looked at that chair, and even if it was subconsciously, you decided that that chair could support you, and so it impacted how you lived, it impacted your actions, and you actually sat down on it. If you would have looked at that chair and it would be missing the back and half the cushion was gone and it only had uh, two and a half legs, you probably would have made the decision that that chair cannot support me. I will not sit down in it. You would not put your faith in it. But because you looked at it and you saw that it could support you, you placed your faith in it and it impacted your actions. You actually sat down in it. In the same way, when we look at Jesus and we say, Jesus is enough, He is big enough to save me, He is big enough to forgive me, He is big enough to, uh, that I can believe the promises that He has made about salvation and about eternity and about forgiveness, I'm going to trust in Him that faith has to produce action in our life. James chapter 2, verses 14 through 17 say this, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things they needed for their body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. James is not saying that we are saved by works. James takes the, the position that the rest of the Bible takes, that we are saved by faith. But James also says that that faith produces a change in who we are. James goes to the rest of that chapter too. And James even says, look, the demons in hell, they understand that God is real. They have seen Him. They used to be in heaven with Him. But they're in hell. They're demons because they have not placed their faith and trust in Him. Just because you know something, if it is not impacting your life, if it is not changing you, then you have to question your faith. That's what Paul says. Can this faith save you if it's not producing a change? And so, as we place our faith and trust in Jesus, that produces a change in who we are. All right. Thirdly, as we look at this idea of fruit, we see that the fruit our lives produce reveals who we worship. So, As human beings, God has created every one of us, and God has created us as beings who worship. God has created us as people who worship. We are going to worship something. That means we are going to look to something that we are going to place value in, that we are going to exalt and lift up because we find some kind of purpose or hope or satisfaction or ultimately salvation in now, in our world, there's a lot of things that are worshipped, from entertainment to athletics to money to power to popularity, um, all kinds of things. But there's only one who deserves to be worshipped, and that is Jesus. That is God because of who He is and because of what He has done for us. And here's the reality. As Christians, if I asked everyone in this room, if you're a Christian, and I asked you who you worship, our first response is to say, we worship God. And that should hopefully be our our response, and hopefully that is real. But sometimes we say that because we know that's who we're supposed to be worshiping. But the question that I want us to ask ourselves is, what do our actions say? Because our actions reveal who it is we worship. Matthew chapter 7, verses 15 through 20, Jesus says this, Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. 
A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Now, Paul or Jesus is specifically talking about uh, false teachers, false prophets. But in reality, the truth stands tall that the fruit you produce in your life shows who it is you are following. Shows who it is you are worshiping. So, ask yourself the question. I ask myself the question. Examine our hearts. What do our actions say about who we worship? What do our actions say about who is in control? Who is the king? Who is the God of our lives? Now, we've looked at what the fruit of the Spirit was. The love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Let's look at before that in Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 through 21. Because here Paul lays out the, the works of the flesh, or the, the fruit of the flesh, you could say, to kind of keep everything, um, keep our, our um, examples, sorry, illustrations, all in line. My mind went blank. All right, so Galatians 5, 19 through 20 says this. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, Enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I've warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So if we took these two things in Galatians that Paul lays out, and we looked at our life, do we see more of the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, faithfulness, and self-control? Sorry, that was way too fast. Or do we... um, or do we see more of these works of the flesh? Do we see the, the immorality? Do we see the envy? Do we see the jealousies? Do we see the fits of anger? Do we see the rivalries and dissensions and everything else listen, listed there? What is predominant in your life? What takes the forefront in your life? Is it the fruit produced by us following Jesus? Or is it the actions that are produced by us having someone or something else that we worship? We're going to worship something. And our lifestyle, our actions, proclaim to the world and show who it is that we worship. In fact, you cannot separate your worship from your actions. You cannot. Your worship will always drive your actions. It it comes from the basis of what worship is. A lot of times when we talk about worship, we automatically think about singing songs. And yes, singing is a part of worship. But as Paul defines worship in Romans 12, 1, this is what he says. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. What does Paul say worship is? It's presenting your bodies a living sacrifice. It's saying, God, here is my life. Here is all of who I am. I'm giving myself over to you for you to do with me what you please. How you want me to live, that's how I want to live. Who you want me to be, that's who I want to be. How you want me to think, how you want me to use my money, how you want me to use my words, that's what I want to. That is worship. Now, if that is what Paul defines as worship, or even the core as worship, then our actions are directly tied to our worship. Who we are and how we live shows who or what it is that we are worshiping. So if we look at those lists in Galatians, do we show the fruit of the Spirit or do we show the works of the flesh? Who or what are we worshiping? Who or what are you worshiping? Who or what 
Am I worshiping? If it's God, God, it's going to show fruit in our life that lines up with who God is and God's character. If it's something else, it's going to produce something far less. All right. So that was our first point is uh, producing fruit or embracing life change. Second, we need to strive to know God more. So if we're going to live a life that, that is worthy of the Lord, in a manner worthy of the Lord, the second thing we need to do is strive to know God more. In verse 10 at the end, he said, Bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Now, last week we talked a lot about why we need to know our Bibles. We need to know the Bible because the Bible is how God has revealed Himself to mankind. The Bible is is not a rule book. The Bible is not... um, Somewhere that I go that just answers all my questions and that is all about me and tells me everything that I need to know about me. The Bible is where I go to know who God is. And here's the great thing. Look, when I see who God is, then I begin to understand who I am. And I begin to understand who I need in light of who God is. And so the Bible is how God has revealed Himself to us. So if we want to know more about God, if we want to increase in the knowledge of God... We have to spend time in God's Word. You have to. You cannot separate the two. We cannot instinctively know things about God because God is different from us. And Isaiah says that um, um, it says that there is no one like God, or or who is like God that that they might know His thoughts or or know Him. And what the, the author is saying there is instinctively, I cannot know God in and of just by who I am. Let me try to explain. I've got three kids. Even with our first child before I had any babies before her, Abigail, our firstborn, um, I knew certain things about her because she's a human being. I knew that she needed to eat. I knew that she go, needed to go to sleep. I knew that she needed her diaper changed. I knew that when she cried, one of those three things probably needed to take probably needed to happen. She was hungry. She was tired. She needed a diaper change. There are certain things about her that I knew. There are certain things that I know about her as she grows up. Just because we are both human beings, I understand what it is that she needs. God is not a human being, and I'm not God. I cannot instinctively, just by nature, know certain things about God because God is so different from me, and that's a good thing. It's also a good thing that God is so different from me that He has given me a way to know who He is. And that's His Word. We have to read God's Word if we want to know who God is because there is no other way. We cannot just sit still and just wait for for some great uh, mystical knowledge to know who God is. God has already spoken and told us who He is. He's done so through His Word. So, when we look at the knowledge of God, he said increasing in the knowledge of God, there's two ways the Bible speaks about the knowledge of God. First, the knowledge of God is knowing who God is. So the first way the Bible talks about the knowledge of God, it's knowing who God is. This is knowing God's character. This is knowing God's attributes. This is knowing that God is holy, that God is just, that God is righteous, that God is merciful, that God is wrath, that God is immutable, that God is uh, sovereign, that God is everything that God is. Part of knowing God means knowing who God is. Let me give you some verses. Hosea 6.6 For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. So here the prophet speaking for God says that God's desire is that we know Him. 
more than we even offer burnt offerings or, or offer sacrifices to Him. 1 Corinthians 15, 34. Paul writes, Wake up from your drunken stupor as it is right, or as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. Now, in this passage, Paul's talking to the church. The church of Corinth is a church that's got a lot of issues, a lot of stuff going on. And Paul says, look, you need to change because there are people around you who have no knowledge of God. They don't know who God is. And it's your responsibility to tell them and share with them. Ephesians 4.13 Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of our stature, the fullness of Christ. Here Paul says if we are going to mature in our faith, if we are going to mature in our unity, part of that is growing in our knowledge of Christ. Growing in our knowledge of God. So that's one way that the Bible talks about knowing who God is. The second way, or the knowledge of God, the second way the Bible talks that the knowledge of God is knowing God's heart. This is knowing the things that pleases God. This is knowing the the things that that we do that are going to honor God and glorify God, that are going to to make God happy, to live in a way that that we know is going to to bring glory to God and to, 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 to live in a way that lines up with who God is. Got some more verses. Proverbs 2, 5. This is in the context of pursuing wisdom. Then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. So as we pursue wisdom, biblical wisdom, godly wisdom, fearing God, placing Him first, and we will understand the knowledge of God. We will understand what it means to love Him and to please Him and how to live in a way to do that. Romans eleven thirty three. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments, how inscrutable His ways. So the knowledge of God is His judgments, it's His ways. They're deep, they're, they're, they're so far beyond us. 2 Corinthians 4, 6. For God who said, let the light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ reveals the, the, the knowledge of the glory of God. That, that, that Jesus Christ through who He was, reveals to us God's heart, reveals to us that God loves us, reveals to us that God wants to work in our life, that, that, God, or that Jesus Christ revealed the, the knowledge, the heart of God. Now here's the great thing, that these are connected. The more we know the person of God, the more we know the heart of God. The more we understand who God is and we search the Bible for who God is and in God's Word we see truths about who God is, then the more we understand God's heart, we understand what He likes, what He desires, what pleases Him, what makes Him happy, what actions would not make Him happy. The more we understand who He is, the more we learn His heart. And look, this is the same in in, in even our earthly relationships. The more you know who someone is, the more you understand how to make them happy. Me and my wife have been married for uh, just over seven years. We had our seventh anniversary in in October. And so, um, over those seven years, we have learned each other. And we're still learning each other, but we have learned things about each other. One of the things I've learned about my wife is my wife does not like uh, lemon very much. She doesn't like a whole lot of fruit stuff, but she doesn't like, uh, like lemon uh, flavored stuff. And so uh, she wanted some sweet tea the other day. Me and the girls went to the grocery store, and I love, my, one of my favorite drinks is an Arnold Palmer. Half sweet tea, half lemonade. It's, 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 it's good stuff. 
And so when we're at the store, I see uh, this uh, sweet tea that's mixed with lemonade. And I think, man, that is good stuff. I'm going to get some of that. But I know my wife does not like that. And so I know that if that is the only thing that I would have brought home, I would have greatly upset my wife. I knew that she was looking forward to some sweet tea. I knew that she wanted some. And if I would have brought home that and only that, then I would have not hurt her heart, but I wouldn't have made her heart happy. And so I went ahead and got some some Milo sweet tea because I know that's what she likes. Because I know her, I know how to make her happy. Because I know her, I know how to please her. And so I got what she wanted. When I got home, she was happy that I'd gotten that. In the same way, the more we know God, the more we know how to please God. The more we know who He is, the more we understand His heart, and we know how to make Him happy, how to please Him, how to live in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him. All right, now that I've just patted myself on the back for knowing my wife, let's move on. All right, verse 11. The next thing we need to do is recognize where our strength comes from. He says, being strengthened with all power according to His glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. The Bible is clear, Old Testament and New Testament, that our strength does not come from ourselves. In fact, the Bible is clear that naturally we are weak, especially when it comes to spiritual things. In fact, Jesus, we even mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, Jesus in the uh, Beatitudes, when He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, that's blessed are those who recognize their abject poverty when it comes to spiritual things before God. We are not strong in and of ourselves. Naturally, before God in the spiritual things, we are weak. Let me, get, let me read you some verses. That our strength is not from ourselves. Psalm 73, 26. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Ephesians six ten. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. 2 Timothy 2, 1. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Ephesians 3.16, that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with the power through His Spirit in your inner being. We are not strong in ourselves, but we have been given strength by God. If we are going to live in a manner that is worthy of the Lord, we have to understand that yes, sometimes being a Christian can be difficult and it can be hard and we need strength and we've got to understand where that strength comes from. It doesn't come from us uh, muscling up. It doesn't come from us pulling on our bootstraps and just saying, I'm going to do this. Our strength comes from recognizing that I'm weak and God is strong and that if I'm going to have success as a Christian, if I'm going to walk in a manner that is worthy of the Lord, then I'm going to do so not by my strength, not by my power, but by His. To engage with God's power, we have to admit our weaknesses and our shortcomings in order to depend on His strength. Sometimes this is one of the hardest things to do as a Christian is to go to God and admit that we are weak. And one of the reasons why is because our culture says just the opposite. Our culture says that that don't admit that you're weak. Be strong. 
make other people know that they're wrong, that you're always in the right. Never say that you're wrong. Never admit uh, fail, failure or, or fault. Never show humility. Never show a crack in the armor. When it comes to God, all we have are cracks in the armor. And we have to go to God and we have to say, God, I am weak. And because I'm weak, I need your help. I need your strength. I need your power. In fact, if we are unwilling to do so, then we miss out on engaging in God's power because of our pride. Our pride keeps us from engaging in God's power when we do not admit that we need Him. Let me give you some verses. 2 Corinthians 12, 9-10. Some of my favorite verses in all the Bible. Paul says, But He said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest on me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul says, I understand that my strength comes not from me, but it comes from God. 1 Peter 5, 6-7. Humble yourselves, therefore, before the mighty, or under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you. Casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. Humble yourself before the God. Humble yourself before His mighty hand. Go to God. Look, God does not want us to go to Him and say, God, let me show you how tough and strong and spiritual I am. God wants us to go to Him and say, God, I am anxious. Here's my struggles. Here's my faults. Here's my fears. Here's all my anxieties. Here's everything that I'm struggling with. Here's every weakness that I have. I can't handle this. I can't do this. I desperately need you. That's what God wants. And Peter there, it says, because he cares for you. Hebrews 4.15. It should be on the screen. Read along with me. It says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. We have a high priest. We have a king. We have a savior who has been there. Who when we throw out our weaknesses, when we throw out our faults, when we throw out our anxieties, he says, I've been there. I understand. And I care for you. And I love you. And we're going to work on this. And we're going to get you through this. And we're going to strengthen you through this by my strength and by my power. He loves us. He is compassionate towards us. He cares for us. Yet so often in our pride, we hold it all in and we think, I can do this myself. And in reality, we cannot. We desperately, desperately, desperately need this humility to throw our faults, our fears, our failures, our weaknesses before Him and yell that He helps us. Now, he talked about enduring with joy. So humbly enduring in His strength allows us to endure with joy. Now, here's where this doesn't necessarily in our mindset maybe fit. Endurance and joy do not typically go together. Endurance is not fun. Endurance is when you're trying to, um, you're trying to run a long distance. Now, depending on who you are, that might be, for me to the back of this room, that would be a long distance running. And so endurance is when you're running and your chest starts to tighten up and your muscles are hurting and, and everything in you tells you to stop. Endurance is when you keep pushing forward. Endurance is not fun. Endurance can hurt. Endurance can be painful. Endurance takes strength. There are times in our Christian life when it's not fun. 
There are times when it is hard. There are times when it is painful. There are times when everything in us says just to stop. And if we're depending on ourselves, then we will. But if we cry out to God, if we are honest with God and we say that, then not only will God strengthen us, but He will give us joy and peace in the midst of difficult situations, in the midst of difficult circumstances, in the midst of pain. He will give us joy. If we will cry out to Him. Now, I've not done a whole lot of running in my life, but, but I have tried here and there to run. And some of the things that I've, I've, I've seen talk about how if you set goals for yourself, uh, it, it makes it easier. So say you've got long-term goals. So you've got a long-term goal if you want to run a, uh, a marathon. Then you set for yourself smaller goals of, first I'm going to run... 100 feet. I don't know. I don't know what the goals are that you would set. But you set smaller goals that you can build to. And then as you're running, you can set goals of, you look on the horizon, you see that tree, say, I'm going to run to that tree. And once you hit that goal, then you set the next goal. I'm going to run to that. Then you look down the horizon some more and you run to that. The goal that we are setting that helps us endure is to live this life that is worthy of the Lord. To live this life that glorifies Him, that pleases Him, that is fully pleasing to Him. That is our goal that we run to. So not only does having goals help us, but also having motivation helps us. So the next thing Paul talks about is really our motivation. He tells us to be thankful for salvation in verse 12. He says, Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. So as we are trying to endure, as we are moving forward, one of the things that helps us to be motivated to push us forward is being thankful for our salvation. And there are two things that Paul mentions here. One, Paul says he, is, he says, he has accepted me. This is one of the reasons why we are thankful. This is one of the things that motivates us to push forward, is that he has accepted me. He says, giving thanks to the Father, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He is qualified. This means to make sufficient. What this means is before Jesus, we were insufficient. We were insufficient to stand before Christ. We were insufficient to stand before God. We were insufficient to do anything when it came to Him. The fact that He has qualified us means that He has changed our standing before God and He has made us sufficient. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin so that we might uh, become so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. At salvation, Jesus Christ changed our standing before God. We went from being enemies of God. We went from being um, dead in our sin and trespasses. We went from being uh, polar opposite of who God is and where God was, not even desiring Him, the Bible tells us, to He changed us to where He has now made us sufficient. He has qualified us. We are now not just qualified to stand before Him because of the righteousness of Jesus that we have been given according to 2 Corinthians 5.21, but we have also been adopted into His family, which leads us to the next point, that we have been qualified to share in the inheritance of the saints so that He has accepted me and He has adopted me. That's what it means to share in the inheritance. We have been brought into His family. We are His children. He has adopted us that He is our Father and we are His. When we can keep our mind set 
and remember and be thankful for our salvation. Be thankful that God has qualified me, that He has accepted me, that He has taken and changed me from who I was into now I'm adopted as His child. Then that helps motivate us and push us forward when it comes to the difficult times of endurance in our spiritual life. In fact, a lot of times, the times when we begin to, to fall back, the times when we begin to kind of lose our, lose our fire or lose our desire, the times when we begin to maybe question God or doubt God, typically we have taken our mind off of what He has done for us. We're not being thankful of the fact that He has changed us. We're not as thankful of, of what He has done for us. And our mindset and our focus has shifted from God and the gospel and what He has done for us through Jesus and how He is changing us and how He is working. And we have shifted to something else. Our worship shifts. And so our life begins to shift. So if we are going to be motivated, we have to be thankful for salvation. And really this drives or moves us to the next point. Our last point is that we need to stand on the truths of the gospel. Verses 13 and 14. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This is the gospel. And we need to stand on these truths. First, we need to because truth dispels lies. If there are lies coming in our life, God does not love you. God does not care about you. God has forget, forgotten you. Uh, if God really loved you, then why is this happening? Those are lies. The only way to defeat lies is with truth. Not positive affirmation. Not logic or philosophy. Only through truth. Secondly, to stand on the truths of the gospel, we need to preach the gospel to ourselves daily. Here's what I mean by that. Preach the gospel to yourself daily. To remind ourselves of the gospel. To remind ourselves that before Jesus I was a sinner. I was dead in my trespasses and all I deserved was judgment and hell. But God loved me. And He loved me enough that He sent His Son to die for me to pay my price. As 2 Corinthians 5 said, to, to give me His righteousness and to take my sin so that I am now His child. And that my standing before God is not based on me and how good I do today. My standing to God or before God is based solely on Jesus. So if I fail and I mess up, God still loves me. If I fail and I mess up, God always offers forgiveness. And because of what Jesus Christ has done for me, then I'm going to move forward. I'm going to strive to live with Him. I'm going to strive to follow Him. I'm going to strive to pursue Him and chase after Him and love Him. And that is going to be the goal and the drive and the pursuit of my life. We need to daily remind ourselves of the gospel because the gospel was not, does not just impact us at the point of salvation. It impacts us every day as we remember what God did through the gospel. What God did through Jesus. My family does not love me, but God loves me and He always will. My friends have abandoned me, but God has promised that He will never leave me. He will never forsake me. This is all reminding ourselves of what Jesus did for us on the gospel and the truths that flow out of that. And we need to daily remind ourselves of these truths so that we can stand firmly on them. Because when we don't, and we stand on something other than truth, 
Truth is the only thing that is solid, is the only thing that can support us, is the only thing to build the house on. It is the solid rock. Jesus is truth. He is the solid rock that we build on. Anything else is shifting sands that fall beneath us. So in closing, what does it mean to live a life that is worthy of the Lord? We recognize what Jesus Christ has done for us. We strive to live obediently uh, that Jesus Christ might change who we are. We strive to know Him more. We submit to His authority. We submit to His life. We are thankful for what He has done for us. We recognize ourselves as as debtors. Romans 8.12 says that we are debtors to grace. Now, I don't typically read a whole lot of quotes from, uh, from other people, but... I came across this quote from, from uh, a pastor named Charles Spurgeon. And, you know, there's times when I think that I might be doing a halfway decent job as a preacher, and then I read something that Spurgeon said. that This was just in a, in a uh, devotional that he wrote. And I'm realizing, okay, I'm, I'm not there. I'm not that. But you have the second half of this quote that I'm about to read in your, on your note sheet. So I'm going to read part of it, and I'm going to show you where it picks up. And I want you to listen. And when we get to the part where you can, I want you to read along, because this is... This is good stuff. Spurgeon writes this. As God's creatures, we are all debtors to Him, to obey Him with all our body and soul and strength. Having broken His commandments, as we all have, we are debtors to His justice, and we owe Him a vast amount which we are not able to pay. But of the Christian, it can be said that he does not owe God's justice anything, for Christ has paid the debt His people owed. For this reason, the believer owes the more to love. I am a debtor to God's grace and forgiving mercy. So there he says, but because of the gospel, our justice has been moved. Now this is the part that you have in your note sheet. But then, because we are not debtors to the Lord in that sense, we become ten times more debtors to God than we would have been otherwise. Christian, pause and ponder for a moment. What a debtor thou art to a divine sovereignty. How much thou owest to his love, for he gave us his son that he might die for thee. Consider how much you owe his forgiving grace, that after 10,000 affronts, he loves you as infinitely as ever. Consider what you owe to his power, how he has raised you from your death and sin, how he has preserved your spiritual life, how he has kept you from falling, and how through a thousand enemies, or though a thousand enemies have beset your past, your path, you have been able to hold on your way. Consider what you owe His immutability. Though you have changed a thousand times, He has not changed once. Thou art as deep in debt as thou canst be uh, to every attribute of God. To God thou owest thyself, and all thou hast yield thyself as a living sacrifice. It is but thy reasonable service." God has given us more than we could ever imagine. And because of that, because of what He has done for us, remembering the gospel, remembering how He has saved us, remembering our salvation, we should strive to move forward to live in a way that is worthy of the Lord and fully pleasing to Him. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you now and thankful for this time. We are thankful for your word, God, that you don't leave us in the dark. But God, so often you spell out for us what you want us to do, who you want us to be. Father God, I pray, Lord, that we would take your word seriously. Father God, that as you speak, we would respond. And Father God, we would make it our goal and our desire to live in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him.
Father God, areas that we need to confess and repent, let us confess and repent. Areas that we need to um, trust you more, God, let us trust you more. Father God, let us just be people who recognize how great you are and what you've done for us. And Father God, let us be people that you are changing to impact the world around us. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name we do pray. Amen.